0: Well, that is good because I actually don't have any more time now before Christmas. You saw my schedule. I have something every day for the next eight days.
1: Yeah, there's 27 sleeps till Christmas from when we're recording.
0: Yeah, I know. But that's just the next eight days. I haven't looked further than that. Okay.
1: Well, I can do this one painlessly. It's a great story.
0: (laughs) I hope it is because...
1: There's a lot that goes on.
0: Otherwise I might just nod off. There's a a high possibility.
1: Okay. (laughs) I'm very
0: tired. Guns! War! No. Explosions! Right, that really will send me to sleep. That's why I didn't do history
1: at uh, at GCSE or A-level. Okay. Because guns, war and bangs. Would you like a story about an area of land... There's some architecture involved. I'm not sure. You're not selling it. Okay. If I said Judge Dread,
0: I'd say why are we going into Mega City One?
1: Ah, why indeed? Are you intrigued now? Has, not really. Has the hook gone in?
0: <laughs> I'm going to pretend
1: it has. Okay. Well, should we should we give it a go and see what happens? Mm. Hey, up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins mm-hmm. in the 18th century mm-hmm. because that was the period when tea overtook coffee and beer as the most popular drink in Britain. Oh, it's banging. You can't you can't whack a good cup of tea. And we, we learnt all about the introduction of tea um, with Evie's last episode and Catherine of Braganza. Yes, and Titus
0: Oates. The amount the of The Wonder
1: Horse. The amount of tea it was she was drinking it so all the ladies in waiting wanted to be fashionable mm-hmm. so they drank it. So then all the noble ladies wanted to drink it. Naturally. Then all the middle class ladies wanted to drink it to pretend they were noble ladies. Yeah. And then all the poor ladies wanted to drink it. At one point in Victorian Britain, this is an aside, five per cent of a family's budget was spent on tea. 5%. I wonder what
0: percentage. I mean, we are avid tea drinkers in this house. We are tea bellies, we really are. Mm. I wonder what percentage of our income it won't it won't be anywhere near
1: 5% point .0 something yeah. and we drink multiple cups a day. Anyway, so tea. Some days it's all I drink. Water what? <laughs> Never met her. <laughs> <laughs> so tea. Yes. Big thing. While normally a new trading commodity was seen mm. as a good thing by the merchants of the East India Trading Company. You know those guys?
0: The good old East India Trading Company.
1: Always always noble, always doing <laughs> the right thing.
0: Yeah,
1: always on the right side of history. But when it came to the trading for tea, mm. they ran into a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. You see, normally, when the British would trade with other countries, the vast majority of the trade would be made up of goods in kind, meaning that very little actual currency or precious metals, would have to change hands. Right, okay. However, in this case, the only place that was producing tea in large enough quantities to satisfy the British market was China. Well, yes. And to be quite frank, Britain was not producing anything that the Chinese wanted. We had nothing nothing to offer them. Nothing at all. Not Sheffield Steel? No, they had
0: their own. Not... Linen? No. No. Wool? No. No. I'm just trying to think what we actually did produce. No, I've not finished yet. Listing all the things the
1: British Isles produced. We've had loads of things. Well, the Chinese were producing better, so they didn't want our stuff. Fair enough. Even worse, though, it wasn't just tea that the British upper classes were clamouring for. They also had an insatiable desire for Chinese-produced porcelain and silks. And as a result, the British traders were being forced to pay for these goods almost entirely with silver. So they were just having to pay for them, which they didn't like. Actual just monies.
0: No bartering.
1: Nothing. Fair enough. And naturally, for the traders of the East India Company, Mm. that wouldn't do. They don't like not holding the levers of power in a trading relationship. I was going
0: to say, they don't like not having the upper hand in Mm. trade deals and... And that they kind of definitely thing definitely didn't in this no
1: it was like the one thing that everybody wanted was tea and the only way they could get it was parting with their hard-earned currency yeah that's not going to go down well no
0: i mean hard-earned is a bit of a far stretch do you
1: not think okay earned no not no. earned <laughs> try again <laughs> gained acquired acquired the money that acquired. they acquired yeah, <laughs> yeah. The British traders, they realised that what they needed was a way to rebalance the situation by finding a product that the Chinese would find just as addictive as the Brits found tea. Right. And the product that they settled on around the middle of the 18th century was opium.
0: Yeah, I knew that was coming. It's in Sherlock Holmes. Mm, He liked opium. He liked opium amongst other things.
1: And cocaine. Mm. Now, to be fair, we can't say that the British introduced opium to China. No. It had been imported in small amounts and used as a medicine for pain relief since at least the 5th century. And the Portuguese began importing in the late 17th century, to the point that it had led to a law banning the use of opium for recreational use in China. Yes. But the Portuguese had been importing around 200 chests worth of opium per year, while by the end of the century... The British were importing around four thousand five hundred chests worth of the drug, which is over a two thousand percent increase.
0: Yeah, who so? Opium
1: mm.
0: was a Portuguese product.
1: No, where where is it from then? Well, opium is basically heroin, isn't it? So it's yeah. produced from poppies. So it comes from the Middle East and comes from um, around that area. Right, Afghanistan, okay. the stands, good places to produce opium. Um, and it I had just, been introduced via the Silk Road to China. Yeah. But um, the Portuguese realised that it was quite a good trading commodity because once people started on the opium, they tended to continue to buy it. It was oh, a good steady... Oh, yeah, Um But what they were doing was small-scale. The Brits were like, we need them to be as addicted to opium as we are to tea. We had a real problem with it,
0: though, in um, Victorian Britain. Mm. Massive problem with it. It was opium dens, opium houses. There was, there was whole roads. There was bartering, it was coming in on barges, it was it was horrific.
1: It was nothing compared to what we were doing to the Chinese. Oh no.
0: No, we screwed them well and truly.
1: Emperor Zhao Qing saw the damage that this addictive substance was doing to the population and he banned all imports in seventeen ninety nine. He was like, That's it. Not even for medicinal use. We're getting rid of opium. Opium is now no longer welcome in China. Fair enough.
0: I don't I don't see his problem there. No. I don't, I, no I sorry The problem. I don't see the problem there. I see that as sensible.
1: Good governance. Mm -hmm. This is a drug that we can ban. Yeah, and we should. The problem was the East India Company, they didn't see it that way. And they weren't (laughs) about to go back to using cash to pay for goods. And especially now, you know, because they could get a much better deal for the black market opium. Because once mm. you ban something, the price goes up Well, that. because of the and, risk I mean, of and, the importing. And, and
0: I'm not being funny, but human nature, if you tell somebody they can't have something, oh, it's yeah. the only thing they can think of. Mm. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I suppose now you're looking at like, kind of like, you know, do we legalise some drugs? Because banning it
1: hasn't worked. Ha-
0: it hasn't worked and it drives the desire for it up.
1: Weirdly, I think it's Portugal that's gone with um, regulating all drugs. Is it Portugal? I think it is Portugal. The Portuguese are ahead on drug policy, man.
0: They are. They
1: introduced it first and now they're getting rid of it first. Mm. Yeah. Um, But what they began to do, the East India Trading Company, was they just started smuggling it in. uh, In ever larger quantities and, like all good drug dealers, Mm. they were happy to provide local Chinese people some free samples. To get them addicted before the...
0: Our local bays were used to struggle to smuggle opium in Hesham. Probably. No, they were. It's fact. It's in the um, local history thing.
1: Really? Yeah. What, into the country? Yeah. So if we go down to the little cove and dig, we might find a chest of opium. It came in barrels. Oh, okay. They did opium-lined barrels of of other products. Ah, so you had to take the barrel apart to get the Mm -hmm. opium. So it's like a double-skinned barrel. Yeah. Well, that's quite smart. Mm. Well, I don't know how we were importing it into China, but we were doing it in massive amounts. Mm-hmm. The main barrier to this profitable smuggling, though, was that all European imports to the country had to come through the port at Canton, where the customs checks were becoming ever more fastidious as time went on. So there was only one port in the entire country where European vessels were allowed to dock. Yeah. And that that gave them a massive advantage in trying to crack down on smuggling because you had to go through there, you couldn't go anywhere else in the country, you'd just be turned away because you weren't a Chinese vessel. Mm. What the British needed, really, in order to get around these customs checks, was their own port in China. One that they had sole control of and which could act as a distribution hub for opium moving forwards.
0: Well, I get this, but I don't see the Chinese government going for that.
1: No, but since when have the British ever needed the local government to agree to things all they needed you probably because it's china all all we needed was a paper thin excuse to just mm. take a chunk of land anything mm. and then we can say actually we've been wronged and in return we want some land
0: yeah again i'm of all the countries to try and pull a fast one i don't think china's a good one
1: mm. it's not quite the the powerhouse at this point is it not that no. it is currently? Because it, oh, no. it
0: is a leader in almost everything. It yes. is a complete world powerhouse. The
1: last, let's say the last century has seen China not only catch up, but fly ahead. Oh, far exceed yeah. anything. But yes. this is pre okay. all of that Cultural Revolution stuff. And on June the 3rd, 1839, a convenient excuse presented itself. Convenience uh, to the British. mm and excuses really stretching the term. I'd say. I was
0: going to say, is it wafer sin? Yeah, yeah, it's been
1: stretched so much. A Chinese government official, Lin Si Hu, mm. Commissioner Lin Si Hu, mm. uh, he managed to complete a major drugs bust by trapping the British merchants in the harbour and raiding both their ships and warehouses simultaneously. So he decided that just on one random day he was going to close the port and every ship that was there he was going to search. And all the warehouses at the same time, so that you couldn't move it from one to the other to try and avoid it. Was no, it was. This is happening. everything is happening yep. with a fine-toothed comb. Mm-hmm. They seized a staggering twenty thousand chests worth of opium. Doesn't surprise me. Which is the equivalent of over a thousand tons of opium. <laughs>
0: Doesn't surprise me.
1: And this was just a random day. It this wasn't was like just they'd one had intelligence day. that. Today, all the drugs were coming through, like you see in cop shows. This was just no, no, an average Tuesday. This is just yeah. This yeah. is
0: just day of the a day of the week. Does it have a Y in it? Yeah, okay. That's fine. But is he? I mean, it's one of the it's one of those things, isn't it? It's just like where there's a will, there's a way. Mm. And like I said, I don't. Maybe it. Maybe it was. I mean, the same chests. I don't. I don't think there'll be they won't be disguised i think they no, will no, no. be disguised
1: a chest was a unit of measurement for drugs at the time you know like a, or like a, or a baggie or whatever today i think a chest of it was just a, right. a I wonder if because... it's like
0: a like a bundle or a bale you know what i mean like well twenty
1: thousand chests was the equivalent to a, a thousand tons so it's there was some kind of uh, metric for it yeah yeah anyway to make an example of these traders who just so happened to be there on this day. Uh, the Chinese authorities took the opium, destroyed it, and then threw it into the sea, which presumably drugged the marine wildlife for dozens of miles in every direction. I'm not sure how you'd Destroy opium. Well, this, you know, you think burn it, but then you're just going to get everyone really
0: high. Everyone within a thousand mile radius is going to get high as a freaking kite.
1: No one will feel pain on that day. No. In Canton. And anyone that's too close will probably die. Probably. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if there was one sort of overzealous official who got too close. Yeah,
0: far too close. He had to oversee because he's a fucking control
1: freak. And he's just like... (laughs) That video of the, uh, the the news reporter who was um, stood too close to the... where they were burning all the cannabis. Yes. And just gets high. And just gets
0: higher and higher and higher, minute on minute on minute. Yeah, it, it's, it's hilarious and well, ridiculous. Imagine
1: that happened. Oh, yeah. Only then the guy keeled over and died. Yeah. So, yeah, they've seized a load of contraband stuff mm. and they've got rid of it. Mm-hmm. And Lynn deciding you know to double down on his success he decided that what they needed to do was introduce a new bond system whereby any foreign trader had to sign a document a legal document to say his ship contained no opium before they would be allowed to dock with the punishment of death being dealt out to anyone who was subsequently found to actually be in possession of opium yeah so you had to sign a letter saying on pain of death
0: on pain of death, I definitely, I definitely, you. definitely don't have opium on this boat, but I do. But yeah.
1: I don't. The British government naturally insisted that all British sailors refuse to sign these documents. Oh, right, okay. Arguing that it's against the spirit of free trade, because we have always been neoliberals, apparently. Right. Uh, and they, yeah, they demanded that no British ships sign these documents. Just none of them. It's like you're all free to do what you want as your free traders but don't do this. Don't you bloody... Because you won't be allowed to dock back at home. Yes. You may You may be docking in Canton but you know what you won't be docking? London. Mm. The escalator, Southampton.
0: Or Portsmouth. Or any of them. And none of them. Nothing. You're not allowed anywhere. Maybe Bristol. Maybe. If you could. Bristol
1: if you say you're it... very sorry. Bristol
0: was a bit more piratey though, wasn't it? Was it was a
1: bit more piratey. I think if you were going to be able to dock anywhere... Yeah, you
0: could probably get... In Bristol. Mm.
1: This naturally led to escalating tensions between the Chinese and the British. Mm. And it reached a breaking point, thanks to, of all people, our good friends, the Quakers. Oh,
0: God. Them on on the oats
1: box. Because they're just too damn wholesome. Mm -hmm. Literally, that is the problem, because the Quakers, they'd never traded in opium on religious grounds. Well, no. And were therefore very happy to sign the legal documents to say that they wouldn't be trying to bring opium into the country. But the British Navy didn't like the ideas of the Quakers freely trading with the Chinese Mm. on the grounds that they were happy to follow a sovereign law passed by a recognised government of a nation. Mm -hmm. Like idiots. So they blockaded the port from any British ships that might want to do something as stupid as promise not to engage in drug dealing. So Mm -hmm. the British Navy sent a bunch of ships outside of Canton Mm -hmm. and any British trading ship that tried to get in saying we'll sign the things. They're like, no, you won't, mate. Turn around. You're not allowed in here. You're not going to change our bargaining position. Although I don't know why they thought it was going to hurt the Chinese, because as we'd established...
0: They didn't give a shit anyway. Aside from the
1: opium, which was illegal, there was nothing else yeah, we had that they we had wanted.
0: we no bargaining chips here. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm literally sitting here listening, going, what is the game here? Where, what is the angle? Because as far as I can see, there is no angle. We, we've got no angle at which we can come out of this oh, well. Oh,
1: the British Empire always has an angle. Are you ready for the angle?
0: Oh, God. Angle me.
1: Okay a couple of other Quaker ships tried to dock. And when the British Navy decided to fire warning shots at a ship called the Royal Saxton Mm. to dissuade them from breaking ranks, the Chinese decided they'd had enough and they sent their own ships out of port to escort the Saxton safely into port, Mm. thinking they wouldn't do something as stupid as fire upon our ships.
0: Oh yeah, with the British we would.
1: It led to a full-on naval battle that resulted in four sunk Chinese ships and the first military casualties of what became known as the Opium Wars. Ah, we're
0: doing the Opium Wars. Okay, very
1: good. And I do intend to cover the Opium Wars in detail in a future episode, so for today, all we need to know is that the Chinese were no match for the British Navy in the first one, and that in the second one, France, Russia, and even the USA piled in to ensure that China had absolutely no chance of resisting these let's say, essentially European powers from exerting their Well, they their might
0: have lost the battle, but they've... No, they might have lost the war... No. Two wars. They lost two wars, but I think, generally speaking, they've come out of history on top, because, like I said, I mean, they are... Yeah, but it it,
1: it didn't look that way after the end of the second Opium War.
0: I am sure not, but they're
1: playing the long game. The longest game. At this point, they weren't playing any game. They were just in ruins... Because both the First and Second Opium Wars ended with treaties that are collectively known today as the Unequal Treaties. Right. And the British suddenly found themselves in 1860 with authority over Hong Kong and the surrounding Kowloon area.
0: Oh, is that when we took Hong Kong? Yeah. Right, okay. And
1: simultaneously, China agreed to remove the ban on the trade of opium. So Britain got their port, they got control of territory within China, and they were allowed to trade opium again.
0: And we created drug addicts.
1: There's your angle. Woohoo. British forces will then take advantage of the First Sino-Japanese War in 1898 to gain a 99-year lease on an even larger area. We can assume that the plan at the time was that in some point in the next century, the British would find a reason to claim that they needed to make the deal a permanent one. Mm -hmm. So agreeing to the 99-year lease was, well, then we have possession of it.
0: We've got long enough to figure something out. It's fine. We've got loads of wiggle room here. We've got 99
1: years. And if after the 99 years, I'm sure we were arrogant enough to go, we'll still be the biggest empire in the world. So we'll just say no. Yeah. And what can you do? Yeah. (laughs) Quite clearly, not fight a, 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 not a military battle, a a naval battle Mm. and win. Because, yeah. Well, I'm saying that, there must have been a pretext because actually that 99 year lease, uh, the British agreed that it included returning most of the territory that had been ceded to them in 1860. So they weren't just saying the extra stuff. It was like, yeah, yeah. And in 99 years, if we can have this larger bit now, we'll give you most of it back. Mm. So there was was an ulterior motive there. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But due to the fact that the land was, legally speaking, only on loan, the Chinese decided that they would need to keep some presence within the territory to keep an eye on what the British were doing, which I think is sensible.
0: Certainly sensible. I mean, we do have form.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised at how, how little they actually requested in terms of being able to do that. Which was why, in 1898, the agreement that was signed allowed them to keep control of Kowloon Fort, a structure made up of seven acres of barracks and administrative buildings surrounded by an impressive defensive wall. There was home to approximately 700 people, give or take, at the time, Mm. most of whom were Chinese officials and their families rather than any military presence. So it was a fort in name, but it was more of an administrative hub. Okay. When the Qing dynasty ended in 1912, the fort appeared to be left to the British by proxy. Mm. So there's now a, a, a Chinese nationalist government. This is prior to communism, which came after the Second World War.
0: right. I'm not going to be able to remember all this, so
1: for the dear listeners, please, not for me. I'll just kind of fudge my way through this. A lot of people make the assumption that um, the emperor, the last emperor was um, overthrown and communism in in China started, but there was actually a period of time in between the two where there was a nationalist government.
0: Right.
1: Where it was still going to be democratic. That was the idea anyway. Mm. So it appeared that because the guy who'd signed the agreement, the emperor, was now no longer there, that the British could just take the fort. Okay. The the people we said who could administer from the fort, they're no longer in power, so we'll have the fort. Okay. However, the British didn't really know what to do with it, and it's kind of devolved into a slum area, until in 1933, the British authorities in Hong Kong decided that it had become such an eyesore that they may as well just knock it down, revamp the area with new housing. And to be yeah,
0: fair... I mean, we don't, we don't really like... We like pretty things, mm. the British. It's just like, oh, no, that looks ghastly. And we only need to look at Grenfell, which was an absolute travesty just a few years ago for the uh, listeners abroad, where a block of flats was clad in flammable stuff.
1: So purely, that it looked prettier. So it,
0: that it looked prettier. And we... Not we, but obviously the government then okayed it all it was absolutely fine and some poor families burnt alive in their own houses as the whole block of flats went up in flames they are still waiting to be rehoused still stood it
1: still stood it's horrific the burnt out shell of grenfell just stands there i know
0: it is absolutely there's still people not accounted for in that as well Mm, it was an absolute i think we can
1: make an educated guess
0: tragedy but it just goes to goes to show that really as a nation we don't change
1: much we just like things looking pretty Well, if anything, we were better back then because the authorities, they did agree to provide some compensation to the around 500 squatters who remained. Oh, well, that's better than Grenfell then. They didn't want any objections. They were like, look, we'll pay you a little bit of money if you'll sod off out the fort so we can level it. Mm. And then we'll be building some houses. So maybe you'll be able to actually, you know, live in a house rather than a shack. It's Mm. win-win. But while the newly Republican Chinese authorities have been happy to leave the fort in disrepair they were not about to allow the British to complete a revamp and begin garrisoning it because they were smart enough to assume that the British were lying through their teeth about the whole build housing and infrastructure thing. Mm. So they were like, yeah, you're saying that you want all the squatters out of there. You're looking to make it into a fort. This is the start of we're not giving the land back. We're not having that, mate.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our fort. Yeah.
1: Which, again, can't blame them. No, if they've looked at anything we've done in any country, it's a reasonable assumption to make, isn't it? is not it? I mean you only need to look
0: at the empire mm. and how many different areas we colonized. Mm. I don't like that term. Invaded. Invaded, stolen, Re- refused to give back, killed people. Mm. It's just horrendous. I mean, as a as a nation we're an embarrassment. There's a to really of humanity um,
1: It was Dada by Nasroji. He came up with the idea of the drain of empire that the British, when they took over a country, what they basically did was just took all of the natural resources Mm. and just funneled all of the natural resources out of the country while providing no compensation to it. So the reason that we could afford to have all this great sort of Victorian building, you know, when people say, why don't we build like the Victorians? It's because we weren't funneling money from other nations directly into our bank accounts, mm. which is why the Chinese they weren't falling for that, and they said, "Right, they you're not right doing anything themselves. with our yeah, you're yeah. not doing anything with our fort." No, and there was some um, very intense negotiations. I imagine there was a tut, mm, an eye roll, and an "Oh, really?" between the new Chinese government and the British. Oh yeah, and eventually it was agreed that the fort could be knocked down provided it was replaced with a very, very demilitarised city garden. Like, we're not giving you any chance to, you know, disguise any kind of stuff. It needs to be a completely flat garden, like Mm -hmm. a bowling green. Yeah. will allow you to do that. Yeah. The buildings within the fort were steadily demolished until only the old yamen, or administrative office, remained. Just this one lonely building. However, the rest of the project had to be temporarily put on hold due to the outbreak of World War
0: II. Oh, God. So we're still cracking. Oh, my God. We are
1: cracking on, yeah.
0: So we've gone from the 1700s. We are now at 1930... When was it? Nine? Yep. 1939? 1939. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Better part of 200 years. Oh, yeah, this this story spans it. Jeez
1: Louise, Louise. Right, okay. This this was the context. Are we still opium ming. That's kind of fallen into the background now. Right. Now we just like having a major port in Asia.
0: Now we just like having things. Well, yeah,
1: everything that we can have. It's more yeah. about the gaining the things rather okay. than the enjoying of the things. Fair enough. On December the 8th, 1941, Japanese bombers launched an attack on British forces in the Kowloon region. Mm-hmm. It was a particularly efficient attack that destroyed practically all the British planes in the area as a precursor to a ground invasion.
0: Oh, my God!
1: The Japanese forces had reasoned that due to the pressure on British forces in Europe, it was very unlikely that any new military hardware would be provided to replace what had been destroyed, meaning that they would face minimal risk of any counteroffensive. So, like, if we blow those planes up, no more planes are coming. They're trying to stop Nazi bombers coming across and... So they're not going to be sending a load of Spitfires out here. No. To Hong Kong. This proved to be a very correct assumption and the Japanese made quick progress. So much so that within two days, they had managed to reach the final line of British defence. Do you know what it was called? The final line of British defence.
0: I dread to think. What
1: did we call it? Gin Drinker's Lane. Oh,
0: Jesus
1: Christ. Yeah. <laughs> about right. Uh, We were very proud of Gin Drinker's Lame. I bet we were. It was a labyrinthine network of trenches and bunkers and machine gun posts that we had been bragging could hold back any invading forces for at least six months. You know, it was just an impossible sort of killing field. Mm -hmm. However, due to a lack of soldiers actually manning the defences, the British had to abandon the gin line within about eight hours. So (laughs) from six months... Eight hours was how long it actually lasted. And by Christmas, less than a fortnight since the start of the invasion, the British surrendered Hong Kong to the Japanese. Now, this proved to be very horrific for the people left behind in the city mm. and the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. It is estimated that half the population were forced to flee. Yeah. However, even with three quarters of a million less people around, the Japanese struggled to get enough food supplies to the peninsula. In order to try and solve this problem, they needed to rebuild the Kaitak airport that they had destroyed as part of the initial bombing raids. Now, the only readily available material were the walls of the Kowloon Fort, which were dutifully torn down and repurposed, right. leaving a fort-shaped hole in the landscape with a single administrative office in the middle. Very so cool. it's gone from being a, an imposing defensive fort full of... Buildings to, to an office. To one office in the middle of a wasteland. A shoffice. A shoffice. A shitty office. <laughs> a shitty office. Or a shed office, if you will. Mm. A shoffice. After the unconditional surrender of the Japanese on the 14th of August 1945, following the two atomic bombs, the mm. British re-established control in Hong Kong by sending a naval fleet into the harbour to deter the Chinese forces from trying to take back the Kowloon Territory. mm mm-hmm. The British promised the locals voting rights as part of the Young Plan, which was named for the governor at the time, Sir Mark Young, mm-hmm. as well as protection from the uncertainty of the ongoing Chinese civil war between the national government and the communists. Yeah. It had reignited in the wake of World War Two and was causing hyperinflation and mass unemployment in mainland China. So they were going, look over there. You can either be good patriotic Chinese and fighting a civil war, or you can be a British territory where everything is stability and calm. Mm.
0: Caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, I think.
1: Yeah, there's there's no right option there. No, there isn't. But not surprisingly, this pitch of the British territory being a safe haven from the ongoing civil war resulted not only in the people of Hong Kong and the surrounding areas agreeing to, you know, British governorship being reinstated but it also resulted in many Chinese refugees heading to Kowloon. And, upon seeing a large area of unoccupied land on the site of the old fort, at least 2,000 of them began building shelters. Mm. Mm. Naturally, this horrified the British forces, who were concerned that if they allowed the refugees to stay, it would result in ever-increasing numbers coming to Kowloon. So in 1948, they tried to drive the Chinese refugees out of the Kowloon fort area. And though they did clear the area... The thing about everyone living in shacks is that within days, the refugees were able to rebuild what had been knocked down. And they were appealing to the Chinese government that the British were trying to extend their authority over what was still technically Chinese territory because the fort had been under the agreement Chinese. Chinese, Yep. The national Chinese government responded by sending a memorandum to the British ambassador that stated, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs now formally declared to the British embassy that In accordance with the provisions of the convention, the Chinese government enjoys jurisdiction over the city of Kowloon and that they have no intention whatsoever of renouncing this jurisdiction. Hmm. The British governor responded that he was willing to accept the principle of Chinese (laughs) jurisdiction. I I, I accept it in principle, but in actuality, I do not. No, no, no. It's it's, you have jurisdiction over Kowloon walled city, but only if you agree. Never to attempt to exercise that jurisdiction in practice. So we'll agree that theoretically it's your land and you're in charge, so long as you never try to be in charge of it. Oh my God. This was agreed to by the Chinese. And what it meant was that in practice, the footprint of the old fort was now, to all intents and purposes, an independent city-state within the British Territory. Mm. The Chinese refugees, knowing that any building erected outside of the old footprint of the fort would be immediately torn down, Mm -hmm. Uh, they were forced to build close together, and rather than outwards, like most cities are built, they had to build upwards. Mm -hmm. Seeing as how the main building material being used during this first iteration of the city was wood, it was somewhat surprising that it took until 1950 before a serious fire broke out.
0: 1950,
1: Jesus Christ. Nearly nine... (laughs) Nearly 2,500 buildings were destroyed, making 17,000 people homeless in a single stroke. But with nowhere else to go, the residents of what was now known as Kowloon Walled City began rebuilding. However, this time, they would use less flammable materials where possible.
0: Like stone. Concrete. Concrete. Brick. Mm.
1: They've learnt, much like the Three Little Pigs, they've (laughs) learnt... Yes. Longevity needs uh, a bit of planning and good building materials Fair from enough. the outset. Okie dokey. You might think that this would have been difficult in terms of just affording the rebuild mm-hmm. for enough accommodation for 17,000 people. But as it turned out, there were now quite a few groups who were interested in helping to develop the city. Oh, right. As they could see the potential benefits of investing in an area that didn't have to deal with pesky things like taxes and laws.
0: Well, yeah, it's its own entity.
1: Mm. Five separate triad gangs took up residence within the city. Oh, my God. Making it an epicentre for drug manufacture. Yeah. And export, naturally. Uh, gambling and prostitution. It is the original megacity one. To the point that the new British governor of Hong Kong described the walled city in 1957 as. <clears throat> and this is the governor. This is the year my dad was born. <clears throat> a cesspool of inequity with heroin divans, brothels... And everything unsavory. <laughs> Unsavory—that's yes. such a British thing to <laughs> say. Oh, it's British. unsavory. You see, you see a heroin addict just dying in it. That's unseemly. It's unseemly. It's unsavory. It's uncouth. I mean, his shirt isn't even tucked in. Oh, Jesus Christ! Ugh. And it's clear he hasn't shaved for at least two days. Does he had, have a clean pocket handkerchief? <laughs> does he have a pocket handkerchief at all oh, no. he does not even have a breast pocket <gasps> to place the pocket square within oh my gosh and while that definitely describes some areas of the city I'm not mm-hmm. going to say there weren't um, gambling dens there wasn't a lot of opium apparently not only a lot of the people living there were addicted to opium mm. but the rats were because they were a oh, lot of it was smoking God. So you had opium rats opium addicted rats Jesus Christ It was still mainly a residential district with thousands of families living in an ever-expanding and evolving network of buildings. And many of these families worked in the hundreds of factories that were also established in the city. Oh my God. Because without having to worry about things like health and safety, and without anyone that they needed to pay taxes to, Mm. the Kowloon factories were able to undercut other manufacturing in the area, leading to a thriving internal economy which in turn drew ever more people to the city.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And while in the interior of the city, it was all factories and and manufacture, there was also around the outer sort of um, perimeter, Mm. we had the ground floor, outer facing buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people who maybe weren't now registered to be doctors or dentists due to legal reasons. For legal reasons. They were able to set up shop. So it was the cheapest yep. place to go for dental work. You oh, go to Kowloon oh. World City. Yeah, you go to one of these that were on the sort of outer perimeter road, mm-hmm. and you'd be able to get really cheap dental work, or you know, <laughs> anything. A lot of that natural um, sort of traditional Chinese medicine that relied on, you know, gaining access to items that maybe were illegal to to mm-hmm. own and to have. Your ivory, your you bones. You all of that there. Your... It was strange really... meats oh, there was a lot of strange meats. Apparently, we'll get to that, actually. Mm. Because one of the areas in which Kowloon Walled City residents excelled mm. in terms of manufacture was the making of food, such as fish balls and dumplings, mm-hmm. um, which would be sold not just in the Walled City, but all over Hong Kong. Oh, my God. So they exported a lot of food all over to the restaurants all over the city. I'm not were, sure. They weren't above using other meats.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm just thinking of like of a place with a reputation as doggy as that, and I'm going to put a pin in
1: that phrase. No, dog was used. Oh,
0: I know. Um, but it's like not exclusively though. I mean, if you if if you could, yeah, but no. What, what I'm saying, meat. what I'm saying, if you'll let me get to my point, is that as a restaurant or even a shop, why the frig would you buy? Any
1: food from the Smack Rat City because it was cheap. It was the cheapest, Ugh. and you could make more of a profit. Yeah, but you might die. Well, there were considerations. I mean, for example, there were no hygiene standards in no. any of these food establishments. Like they're putting dogs in dumplings. You're going to get rabies. And within Kowloon Walled City, for the longest time. There wasn't such a thing as um, plumbing. I was going to say plumbing, sanitation. There were only a limited number of standpipes within the city as the Hong Kong authorities flatly refused to hook any of the buildings up to the mains water supply because they didn't want to encourage people to continue living there.
0: This is going to show my very
1: Britishness now, but facilities. Okay, so by limited amount of of standpipes, at the very most by the sort of mid to late 1980s they had grudgingly installed eight standpipes
0: okay so we've gone from when my dad was born we are now in the 1980s when like mid to late 1980s that's when we were born we were born in 1987
1: but that's that's eight standpipes which each had about four taps on it for a population of well over 40,000 people were living in the city probably closer to to 50,000 people the situation, though, was improved by the ingenuity of the residents themselves, who sank wells to provide extra sources of water, which were mm. pumped up to water storage tanks on the roofs of the buildings okay. and then fed by f- pipes throughout the city. And actually, the the people who sank the wells became kind of private water companies in and of themselves. I'm not sure. And they I'd would want charge residents
0: sinking wells in the ground of the
1: smack rats and well, the shit. And- it's okay. Because just imagine the runoff. Well, there were some wells that couldn't be used, but luckily they would label those as not being for human consumption. So there were some water wells for humans and some that were just for washing and things. What a washing it. Well, you you've got to make do. Ugh, piss and shit water, no thank you. The triads also contributed to community well-being by illegally siphoning water from the main water pipes feeding the rest of Hong Kong. So they got involved and just went... It was only a matter of yeah, time. You know, the pipes are going under us, so all we need to do is just... Tap it. Yeah, tap it like a keg, mm. and we can we can have good quality mains water. The recovered sewerage system was only installed with government help in the 1970s. So for the first 20-odd years of Cowling World City existing, Jesus. it was old-school, Blackadder-style... You had people you had a who, crap out of a window. Yeah, and you had open drains that you just had to kind of encourage the the, the poo and wee to kind of drain out.
0: Oh, God almighty. Mm.
1: Similarly, the government grudgingly accepted that it would be necessary to provide a basic standard of lighting and power to the walled city. Mm-hmm. However, the supply was not even close to what was required to power the various factories and ever-growing amount of private homes. Oh, I would imagine not. The result of that was that power was regularly being fed through unauthorised extensions, oh. increasing the risk of surges and fires. Mm-hmm. And again, by the 1970s, it was agreed that a proper power grid would need to be installed. Fair enough. But by that stage, it was just wires everywhere.
0: Oh, I can imagine. It'd be like um, like spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I imagine it was horrendous.
1: One of the workers tasked with the uh, installation of mains Electricity recalled later, there were many specific technical problems. The city was just a maze of pipes and wires all over the place mm. that we were at a loss of where to even begin. Yeah. Eventually, we decided that we just had to make a start from the outside and work in, taking the cable inch by inch. And there were other problems because on the first day, a number of the electricians just got robbed. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people were very, very tetchy about having the wires sort of attached to bits of property that they felt that they owned mm-hmm. so there were ongoing negotiations because the way it was built sometimes to get to one person's property you had to literally go through another person's property there was mm-hmm. no there was no front door you were walking through someone else's so they had to negotiate in real time about where they would allow the wire to go because that person who lived in the back property needed electricity and the oh. person in the front property saw it as a chance to make a bit of extra money Yep. So there were, there were live negotiations going on throughout this entire process, <laughs> which I love. Now, the reason that the task was so gargantuan mm. by the 1970s to mm. install all of these basic amenities is that by this time, the constant expansion of the buildings had almost reached saturation point. So again, it's just over seven acres. There were 350 buildings, most of which were um, built to the maximum height that they could be due to plane traffic, which was 14 stories tall. So to put that into perspective, that is 350 buildings in an area a third the size of Buckingham Palace's footprint in London, all of which pretty much were 14 stories high. It doesn't surprise me at all. The sheer density of the housing meant that the sunlight was unable to penetrate most mm-hmm. of the city, leading to the ominous nickname for Kowloon Wall City, mm. the City of Darkness.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. And people start to look like the rats that are, well, hooked on smack.
1: Because of the space, they started out with wide corridors, but over time the corridors got thinner Mm -hmm. and thinner and thinner. And it was how much of a space do we need for a person to pass through? That's all we need because the rest of it's real estate that could be put to use. Mm -hmm. Because it was dark, definitely, but it was also very innovative. As the building had developed organically with no city planners, no architects, Almost all available space had been adapted over time to be used in the most practical way possible.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It was actually possible to travel from one side of the city to the other without ever having to venture outside due to connecting walkways and passages between the buildings, meaning that it could in many ways be considered to actually be just one single massive building that was constantly adapting to the needs of those who lived in it. An organic superstructure.
0: I wonder if that was... um... Some of the inspiration? inspiration for Howl's Moving Castle.
1: It was definitely some of the inspiration for Judge Dredd and the Mega Cities. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah, all that was linked, mm. wasn't it? It was. But no, I'm just saying like Howl's Moving Castle's like it's a land mass thing, but it's like one big thing
1: that moves around. That moves around. I just, I just wondered, you know I don't know. We'd have to look into that. Mm. But definitely there have been a lot of um different um ways in which Kowloon Walled City has been adapted. There's a series Mm. of of, um, graphic novels on it um, that are set within the the city. Mm. And there's another um, cultural thing that we'll talk about later. Though I say it it adapted to the needs of all the residents. I doubt a lot of the residents were disabled because apparently those needs only ever included two elevators within the entire Walled City, within these 350 buildings, these 14 stories all over the place. There were two elevators ever installed. Fair enough. And this is the point at which I would like you to open the laptop that is next to you. So that you can see the glory that was Kowloon Wall City. Oh
0: my God. Mm.
1: So when I said it was, you know, 14 stories, none of the buildings looked like they'd been built by an architect. You know, they have not been designed. I they don't were think naturally a
0: straight line in it.
1: Nope. And apparently those balconies on the outside, those um yeah. caged balconies yeah. were the prime real estate. So your richest of the residents would have that. Because oh, aside from no. those people who lived around the perimeter, no one else had any natural light.
0: For anybody interested, there is a fascinating I mean it won't be a drone shot, but a drone ish. Shot. An over the top shot. An over the top shot of it, and I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, it says here, Kowloon Wall City, City of Anarchy. Mm. I can well imagine it. God Almighty. Mm.
1: I mean, it was, every space was filled. Oh, yeah. Mm. In fact, The population density of the city in the year of our birth, 1987, is estimated to have reached the equivalent of 1,255,000 people per square (gasps) kilometre. To put that into context, the current most densely populated city in the world, Manila in the Philippines, has a population density of 43,000 per square kilometre. Meaning that Kowloon Walled City was twenty eight times more densely populated than any city that exists today and is the most densely populated human habitation ever to have been on the face of the planet.
0: Well I'm just I'm just looking now at this is called City of Darkness History yep. by Vocal Media, if you want to Google search it. I'm looking at something that literally looks like it's out of a computer game yes. it doesn't look it looks post-apocalyptic it doesn't look it doesn't look human
1: doesn't look real does it, it doesn't
0: look real and mm. it's just like it is it's showing all those cables what else can i say pipes mm. there's there's no there's no steps there's just ladders mm. but we're about seven floors up Yeah. And there's just outside bendy ladders.
1: Well, a staircase would take up prime real estate. Oh, far too much room. Yeah, Mm. quite. Oh, well. And you'll like this fact. Mm. To the very end of the city's existence, there was only a single postman. What? One? One postman because it was one city block. There was only ever one postman working the entirety of the city at any given time who has to go down in history as the hardest working postman who has ever existed.
0: Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that man needs a a medal and a knighthood, I
1: think. Just to be able to navigate the city, because it was changing. Various ways of getting through... Someone would have blocked off two ends of a corridor and made Mm. the space inside a factory so you could no longer use that corridor. It was a constantly shifting... Maps would go out of date within the city. Mm. And when I say to the end, I think that does provide a little bit of foreshadowing as to what happened in the 1990s. Yeah. So do you want to close your laptop and we'll finish the story?
0: Well, I'm just... I'm just going to to add another another site that people might want to look at because it looks fascinating. It's called Inside Kowloon Walled City. An artist offers a different perspective on life. And I didn't know whether I was looking at a collage or a photograph, because the photographs I've seen of the city look like this higgledy-piggledy collage that this artist's created. I think it's supposed to just show how much it altered and changed and Mm. this was put here and no, it's not and squeeze that in and and all the rest of it. It's fascinating, but that's on South China Morning Post. So if you want to Google that, that's how you'd find that artist. Absolutely Mm. fascinating. Mm.
1: So I said it reached its zenith in 1987, yeah?
0: The year we were born,
1: yeah. But as early as 1984, Mm. it became clear that the British were no longer powerful enough to be able to insist on some kind of spurious reason. uh, Or anything. Didn't we have Thatcher at that point? Yeah, but we weren't powerful enough anymore to come up with a reason to extend our 99-year lease. No. You know, the power differential between us and the Chinese had skewed wildly in the other direction.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So a Sino-British declaration was signed that set the date for Hong Kong to be brought back under Chinese rule to July 1st, 1997. So we set a date. Mm. And with this date set in stone, the Chinese authorities withdrew their objections to the British interference in Kowloon Walled City. And it was decided in 1986 that the entire thing would be demolished and replaced with a park. As it should have been. Mm. Because the Chinese were now going, While it didn't really bother them either way, having that city there. Mm. they're like we're gonna to have to take over mm-hmm. we know we're taking over and we know that this city although it's a tight community it also is a drug manufacturing area well it's a lot there, of crime city of
0: anarchy mm. and i can well imagine it i i can imagine it's absolutely nothing but because
1: I, I imagine that the police didn't enter and that oh, if somebody God, no. went into the wider area and committed a crime and then ran into the city that they were like well Unfortunately that crime is going on the unsolved pile.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was one of that they'll 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 sort
1: it out themselves. Mm. Let's not interfere. And they got They did, this. they had a council of elders. It was there was a complete internal system. Oh, I can imagine it. Yeah. It was really well organized to be fair. And the triads again took part in that system and made uh-huh. sure that everyone towed the line because I think they were of the opinion that you know, they had a good thing going mm. and they had to make sure that it, it could be maintained. Mm. But this decision that they were going to Knock it down, turn it into a park. It was kept secret from the residents for months while the authorities decided on an appropriate compensation scheme for the residents. The secrecy they believe was needed, as there were real concerns that if it became common knowledge that residents in Kowloon Walled City were going to be paid out, Many more people flock into the city in order to take advantage of the situation because there was no such thing as a, a census of the city. No one knew exactly who was living there.
0: No, I was. Do you know what I was just going to say? Could you imagine the amount of children that mm. have grown up and that's their only life experience? Yeah. Could you imagine the fear? Well,
1: of of you suddenly know having to go out of that claustrophobic, but it's the only life you've but known. But it's the
0: only life you've known, so you're quite it feels quite safe because it's home yeah
1: and there's nowhere else in the world that can replicate this
0: so i i mean i'm getting i'm getting both sides of the coin here so i'm i'm getting that people might flock because of payouts and mm. they'll only have lived there for 3 weeks mm. and then they'll get this massive payout and a brand new house and a new lifestyle i get i i get that but could you actually imagine it on the flip side on the other side of the coin where it's just like you've not been told but this is your entire Life experience. There will
1: have been people who lived there from the fifties. I was gonna say thirty so, years. Nigh on forty years. Some people have been there since since the end of the Second World War. There will be yeah. some people who've lived there continually.
0: Exactly, and that... built
1: businesses there, raised families there. Yeah, and they thinking that it's going to carry on, mm. that they've they've built this mm. home with their own bare hands, and that they're going to pass it down to their childrens, which is why it was something of a shock. For a lot of people, when on January 14th, 1987, 400 Hong Kong officials set up cordons around the city and began knocking on all of the doors to inform the residents that they were going to be evicted. That's horrendous. Now, though the eventual compensation package worked out to approximately £300,000 per flat. Yeah.
0: Jesus. That is a... Now... That's a payout. Is it? £300,000. £300,000. Per flat?
1: Yep. Sounds like a lot. But you have to bear in mind that Hong Kong is the single most expensive city to buy a property on the planet. There is nowhere more expensive than Hong Kong. Currently, for example, do you want to have a guess what it is per square metre? I have no idea. If you, if you want to buy a flat and you're paying per square metre, as you do in all the big cities, how much are you paying? I have
0: I I, I don't even have a benchmark to base this on, Joe.
1: Okay, well, how, how big's our house? How many square metres? I have no meters? idea. This is what I mean. I do, okay. This is something that is... How big's this room, would you say? Would you say four square metres? Mm. So this tiny pokey... Five. O- this tiny pokey office that we record in is four to five square metres. Mm. Yeah? In Hong Kong you are paying £17,500 per square metre. So... Why? Because that's how much property costs. Why? So this room, if you wanted to buy this as a flat, would be about £80,000 in Hong Kong currently. If you wanted to outright Well, that's not it, then. It wouldn't have been as high then. It was still damn high. And £300,000 wouldn't have gone as far as you think it would. <laughs> really. Even... No, you would, have, you would have
0: managed, if, if that's your back-of-an-envelope mm. estimate, you would manage a flat four times the size of this room. That's yeah. your limit.
1: Which isn't big. No. Mm. Even so, over 30,000 people accepted the inevitable and took the money. Those who remained, of which there were many, mm. were eventually evicted by force through recurrent raids by Hong Kong police forces between November 1991 and July 1992, before a huge fence was erected to deter any new squatters from moving into the now-empty superstructure. Right, so they hung on for an extra four or five years then. Yeah, because obviously there was a lot of wrangling, oh, there was a lot yeah. of arguing, and a lot of people, like you say, that was the only home they'd known, and it was that, well, why should I have to leave? Yeah. It, this is... I've. A lot of them would have said, "I paid for
0: this, yeah, but also also could you imagine here. how many how easy it would be to disappear
1: mm.
0: in somewhere like that?
1: yeah, there'd be a lot of people who got second starts there.
0: oh yeah, you know, as people moved out, they'd go, Well, I know such and such three floors up who's got a fancier flat has just moved out. I'm taking that
1: one but we may have we may have displaced between forty to fifty thousand people in a stroke, but it wasn't all bad news, right because it gave a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to those who could see the benefits of having this giant, empty superstructure. Mm -hmm. And prior to the beginning of the demolition, the city was used to film scenes for a movie called Police Story, starring Mm -hmm. a 30-year-old, fresh-faced Jackie Chan. So if you want to see Kowloon City amazing it is actually filmed it is filmed in the actual city it was a perfect set for a kind of you know if you're if you're doing a story about the dirty grimy super seedy side of Mm. crime in a big city it's the perfect setting and i believe that if it you know if it had been there for a few more years you probably would have got Slyther. Oh, to film easy. His version of Judge Dredd. Oh, yes. His terrible, terrible version of Judge Dredd. It's my favourite. you love.
0: I love it so much. It's so shit. <laughs> it goes full circle. It goes from cringy shit to, mm, it's, yeah, okay, it's shit, but you accept it to, oh, this is shit nice.
1: To, you know, he just kind of, it, it goes full circle. I love it. I guess what we're saying is watch, watch Judge Dredd. With Sly. With Sly. Yeah. Well, the new one's just called Dread. Yeah, I don't watch that. It's not Sly. It's not as good. Mm. You'd say that about anything. I, I mean, would. I love that man. Any film you would feel The Hobbit would have been Oh my amazing. God, could you yeah. imagine? A thousand times better if Bilbo Baggins <laughs> had been played by Sly Stallone. Worrying. ring. <laughs> that was an impression. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying not to cough. Fair enough. Yeah. Hmm. The demolition began with an official ceremony mm. where an eight-story block was flattened in front of VIPs and government officials. And by April 1994, the Kowloon Walled City was almost completely gone. Mm. I say almost completely gone because while today the site is still a park, mm-hmm. like, you know, the British had wanted to make it back in 1933. Yep. In the centre, the old Yamen, the administrative office, mm. still stands. No. The only building that endured through all of the many changes to the site since the original signal station was constructed in 1668. So even when the city was at its most dense, there was mm-hmm. a tiny little courtyard right in the heart of it. And down there, a one-storey traditional Chinese building sat. And that was where the the residents would go to meet. Any sort of um, community decisions that mm-hmm. needed to be made, everyone would flock to the one little open area. No light got there because you know yeah, it was so surrounded, far too. Yeah, but far it was too still high. used as an administrative office, even when the entire city around it was anarchy. I love that, mm. and that is the story of how Britain's insatiable desire for tea inadvertently led to the creation of the most densely populated city that the planet has ever seen.
0: Super duper!
1: Because for tea. We will create human misery. For tea. anarchy! <laughs> on a scale <laughs> that you have never seen before. God damn it. Anarchy. And in terms of sources. Go on, source me up. The main one, uh, it was a website called the City of Darkness Revisited, uh, which can be found at cityofdarkness.co.uk. Nice. And that has a load of um, photographs from people who went into the city uh, both while it was inhabited, mm. brave people, brave, um, and also once it had been emptied because loads of press went in, um, when it was emptied, loads of architects went in as well. Yeah, it was like, I, how did this work? I bet from a point of, I'm now not going to get stabbed. Mm. It was amazing. People were learning from it how how the people of Calum World City had solved problems mm-hmm. with no money, no space and very limited, rudimentary engineering knowledge that mm. they, they'd they done all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, they had full factories in there mm-hmm. that worked really well and pro- were not just producing goods that were of a good enough quality to, you know, be sold. They were good enough to undercut full-on mm. yeah. commerce. Yeah. Yeah. The other one mm-hmm. um, was I actually read an essay. Okay. By a guy called Wang. Nice. Uh, his first initial is... Why, why Wang? Why Wang? Uh, he wrote it in 2022, and it was titled "From Garrison District to Chinese Town: Land and Boundaries at the Kowloon-Walled City, 1898 to 1912." And that was in architectural histories. But I, I read real academic papers. Academic for this.
0: papers. My goodness me.
1: So yeah, it's only very tangentially linked to Britain, but it's undeniable that Kowloon-Walled City would never have existed and. Probably because it's the only time a truly organic city has ever existed. It only ever existed because we were so doggedly determined to have the upper hand. Yes. And is there anything more British than, even in the face of inevitable, the inevitability that you're in the wrong, insisting Mm. that you are given some kind of concession? So yes, we know that this is your land, And we will accept that so long as you don't try to actually interfere with what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And we would rather see in the middle of our territory this anarchic dystopian future made Mm -hmm. flesh Mm -hmm. that we all have to pretend isn't there, and kind of just yeah, just
0: just just don't just put your hand up, just don't look at it, just don't look at it,
1: rather than admit that actually maybe we should just bugger off and stop trying to interfere in geopolitics on the other side of the world so there you go do you feel like actually from a rocky start you were enthused by the subject it wasn't a rocky start joe i'm
0: tired do you feel that you had a little bit i'm still tired but was there a bit of energy when you were looking at the photos i did like the photos
1: you did like the photos and i will post i'm a visual learner so i I will post some of the photos because i realize what i'll probably do is it'll be like google kowloon wall city now and have be scrolling through those photos as we talk through the rest of the episode. I think that'll be nice. Yeah, yeah. it's an audio-visual medium now.
0: I like this. Yeah, we can do that. I'm a visual
1: learner. Okay, and to any of our poddy peeps who are visual learners, we're finally starting to reach out to you. We're being brave. It's we a are. bit scary, but we're being brave. We will. I mean, I'm, I did. I did one Instagram video.
0: You did an Instagram.
1: I did an Instagram <laughs> reel. And. <laughs> Five hundred people viewed it. So no, they, yeah, yeah, over five hundred people viewed me talking about cephalophores. Very good. Well, do
0: you know what? That 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 might, was a
1: brave moment.
0: It me. was a very brave moment. It might as well have been viral. Yeah. It's not, but it, it was might as, as close well have as... so
1: gotten. <laughs> 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 okay. Well,
0: goodbye, guys. Love you. Bye. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.